2021, Lord willing, has already been planned out as well. But in planning out all of my messages and kind of where we were going, even with my uh, word for the year being vision, I never saw the coronavirus coming. So um, that came and kind of messed up the calendar a little bit. So in order for us to get through the book of Revelation and enter into our Christmas series that we have, we are going to have to take the next two Wednesday nights and uh, really walk through the Revelation series together. So um, this Wednesday at 7 p.m. and next Wednesday at 7 p.m., you can join us in person or on our YouTube channel. You can join us as well. So we're going to be um, using those next two Wednesday nights to help us to be able to get back on track with our Revelation series and finish strong there. So with that said, if you have your Bibles this morning, if you can open with me to Revelation 14 is our starting point, but we're going to go all the way through chapter 16, so we're covering 49 verses today. Woo! Um, just uh, I know that many of you have not preferred this style that we're going through. Most of, or many of you would probably prefer us just to slow down, just walk through um, this as slowly as possible and to cover all the, the things, but... Just remember, we are walking through this book um, in order to be reminded, and we're walking through the book the way we are, to be reminded that the purpose of the book of Revelation was never to lead to out-of-control speculation about the future. That was never the purpose of this book. The purpose of this book was to promote obedience in the present. So the purpose of Revelation is not to make God's children sit around and um, lead to out-of-control speculation, but to make us obedient here and now. Obedient to the Lord right where we live. And as we're walking through this book, we want to continually remember how it ends. You know, this book ends basically, the proclamation is three words, our God wins, while also never forgetting that we have so much to learn from this revelation. In Revelation chapter 6 through 19, we have the events of the great tribulation period, which brings history as we know it to a close culminating in the return of Christ that we're going to look at in um, chapter 19. Tying these 14 tribulation chapters together are three series of judgments that God brings upon the earth. The first are the seal judgments in Revelation 6. The second are trumpet judgments in Revelation 8 and 9. And then the third are the bowl judgments introduced in Revelation 15, but then poured out in Revelation chapter 16. It's been suggested that Revelation 6 Chapters 6 through 11, the seal and the trumpet judgments announce a prophetic message to the unbelieving world. And that message is this, bad news, you lose. And chapters 14 through 19 announce an internal message to the believing world, which is good news, we win. So this is the, the picture, this is the message. And this morning we are coming to a subject that many professing Christians would prefer just to stay away from or even ignore, and that subject is the wrath of God. And let me just say this. This subject has fallen on very hard times, even in the church of Jesus Christ. In today's world, any concept of God's wrath upsets our modern sentiments. God's wrath seems too disturbing or too intolerant for us. Yet let me just say this from the beginning. It is always in our best interest to let the Word of God dictate our beliefs and our desires instead of letting our desires and beliefs dictate the Word of God. So let me say it again. It's always in our best interest to let the Word of God lead and shape our beliefs and our desires instead of trying to let our beliefs and desires shape the Word of God. In fact, 
on this subject of the wrath of God, A.W. Pink, which was a 19th and 20th century theologian, said this. It is sad to find so many professing Christians who appear to regard the wrath of God as something for which they need to make an apology. Or at least they wish there was no such thing. While some would not go so far as to openly admit that they consider it a blemish on the divine character, yet they are far from regarding it with delight. They like not to think about it, and they rarely hear it mentioned without a secret resentment rising up in their hearts against it. So the wrath of God, let me just say this, is a thoroughly biblical concept that we neglect or that we ignore or that we deny at our own peril. So let us dive in today to this word and see this undeniable portrait of the wrath of God as we look at the eve of destruction as this picture painted by Revelation 14 through 16. Like I said, we have 49 verses to cover, so let's um, get ready, let's strap on our seatbelts, and away we go. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and of its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. 
So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Now chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant, serpent, servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary, the tent of witness in heaven was open. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the earth who bore the mark of the beast, or the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Verse 3, The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowls on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his, his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that is in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth, so great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. 
and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of hell because the plague was so severe. Let's pray. Father, we come to this very deep, very dark God, very heavy um, time and heavy subject, and we pray that you would lead us by your word, your spirit, God, into your word, and Lord, just help us to hear what it is you're saying to us today. Help us to hear. Help us to obey. Help us to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we are calling this message the eve of destruction. And just think about our normal attitudes or normal attitudes on the eve of certain events. So think about kids and their attitude on the eve of Christmas morning. How kids are, they refuse to go to bed, and then they wake up at like 4.30 in the morning, just ready, excited, um, cannot wait. Think about maybe you on the eve of a trip. I think about me every time before I go on a mission trip. I don't sleep well. My mind constantly rolls, roams all night as far as, not really roams, it's, do you have this? Do you have this? Do you have this? Do you have this? And I'm constantly checking. Or maybe on the eve of a surgery that you have to go through, and many thoughts are in your mind, or think about how... You responded on the eve of a, an election and thoughts and all kind of things going through your mind and that. And the, the point being is that there are a range of emotions that come into play when we anticipate certain events in our lives. But nothing compares to the emotions in play as we come to the eve of destruction of all that we know. So let us, in the remaining moments that we have, unpack four truths related to what we see on the eve of destruction. First is this. On the eve of destruction, the praise of God is resonating, which is weird. The praise of God is resonating. And one constant that remains all throughout this book is that God is worthy of praise, even when his wrath is being poured out. For over and over again, through seal judgments, through trumpet judgments, today through bowl judgments, we are seeing the wrath of God graphically illustrated and carried out. Yet in the middle of God's wrath, there is worship. In fact, in the book of Revelation, before the wrath comes, they're worshiping God. During the wrath, they're worshiping God. At the end, in Revelation 19, they are still worshiping God. Just listen again to chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, or look at the screen. It says, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of harpists, playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. So as chapter 14 begins, we're once again introduced to the 144,000. These are Jews that are sealed or saved during the tribulation period. And they are standing on Mount Zion, but the better thing is they are standing with the Lamb. They're not just His followers, they're His possession for His name. And the name of God the Father are written on their foreheads. And they're not just marked physically, hear this, they're also marked spiritually, meaning they have become like the one they follow. For we are told that they are pure. In verse 4, we read that it is these who have not defiled themselves. In verse 5, it says they are blameless. So even in the midst of a world of blatant immorality, these are individuals or followers of Christ who are wholly devoted to him and his purity is seen in their lives. It was Henry David Thoreau who said, If a man does not keep pace with his companion, perhaps it's because he hears a different drummer. 
And this is the truth of what we see here. They're hearing a different drummer. They're following the drumming of Christ. And this group of believers, they're sealed unto Christ. They praise God, get this, through their own purity. They praise God through purity. Can we say the same? Can we praise God through our purity of mind and, and heart? Purity of actions. It should be. And then in their praise, they are also not just praising, or praising through purity. They're praising and celebrating the power of Christ. Let me ask you a question right now. Just think about your life right now. What in your life right now can be attributed to the power of Jesus Christ in you? What in your life right now can be attributed to the power of Jesus Christ in you? And look at chapter 15 now. So chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. It says, And I saw those who had conquered the beast and his image and the number of his name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant, servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So think about who's praising God here. We're told that the people who are praising God are those who had conquered the Lamb. But the question becomes, how did they conquer the Lamb? And the answer is, they conquered the Lamb by laying down their lives. So they laid down their very lives. So to the world, these men and women who had been killed by the beast left this world as losers. Yet to heaven, they are declared winners. Brothers and sisters, it matters Whose opinion we're going after? If you're going after the opinion of this world, guess what? This world might tell you you're a winner, but God will say, depart from me, I never knew you. But maybe in this world, maybe this world will tell us we are losers. But yet, oh, to hear from our God and our Savior, well done, good and faithful servant, enter in. Enter in. And so the backdrop here is the song of the redeemed in Revelation 15 is really the song of Moses in Exodus 15. So we know the story. God leads Israel out of Egypt across the Red Sea on, or on dry ground. Once they get across, once the waters come back together, the Israelites sing this song. They praise God. And this is the song that we will sing one day. And here's the beautiful truth. One day, brothers and sisters, we will look back. And we will see how all of history unfolded. And we will praise God for how he brought everything to pass. One day we'll look back and we'll see how God dictated every event of our lives, every event of our world, every event. And we will see how he worked it all for our good and for his glory. One day we will see that. And so here you have this picture of this song, the a beautiful song of Moses or the song of the Lamb. And here's the beautiful thing. The first song mentioned in Scripture is the song of Moses in Exodus 15. The last song in the Bible is the song of the Lamb here. But here's what we have to put together. The song of the Lamb is the song of Moses. For the greatest Exodus is not the one that took place in Exodus, um, in the book of Exodus. The greatest Exodus uh, that will ever take place is us, believers, followers of Christ, will, will follow our Savior out of this world, through the blood of Jesus Christ who covers us. There is an exodus coming. But here's what I don't want you to miss. There is a very high view of God in heaven. There's a very high view of God in heaven. And I pray that there is a very high view of God on earth 
in our lives, in our minds, in our eyes as we see him. There's a very high view of God in heaven. The praise of God is resonating. Secondly, on the eve of destruction, secondly, the messengers of God are proclaiming. The messengers of God are proclaiming. So now let's come back to chapter 14 again. And so now we come back and we see these angels beginning at verse 6 that begin to fly across the sky one after the other. And they're making dramatic and climactic announcements. And I want to show you three things that these three individual angels are proclaiming. First, they're proclaiming a message of salvation. Look at verse 14, or chapter 14, excuse me, verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said, ultimately, fear God and give him glory. So this first angel comes preaching the eternal gospel. And let me just make it very clear. There's only one. There's only one gospel. There aren't two gospels. There's not five gospels. There is only one gospel. And it's the good news of forgiveness through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's interesting to note that in the Bible, the gospel is called the gospel of the kingdom in Matthew 4, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of God, both in Mark 1, the gospel of the grace of God in Acts 20, the gospel of the glory of Christ in 2 Corinthians 4, the gospel of salvation in Ephesians 1, the gospel of peace in Ephesians 6, and the glorious gospel in 1 Timothy 1, meaning this gospel is good. It's good, and it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And this message is being declared by this angel to the whole world, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people. But don't miss this. This is the only reference to the gospel in Revelation. And it's the angel's message that is intended here to remind all people on earth one last time that the gospel, the gospel is the only message of salvation before final judgment will come. This is the only time in Scripture that we see angels actually preaching the gospel. Here's what I want you to understand, brothers and sisters. During this present age, angels are not privileged with the assignment of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's our job. That's our mission. That's our responsibility. That is what we have been tasked to do, to take the gospel. Understand this, and maybe I'm just destined to get myself in trouble, but understand this. In Matthew 28, Jesus did not look at his disciples and said, hey guys, take your opinions to the ends of the earth and win people with your opinions. This is what most of the church do. You think the world needs your opinion more than they need the gospel. Meaning, if I were to tell you to stand up and, and, and share the gospel, you probably wouldn't get very far. But if I said, stand up and give me your opinions on politics, you would talk nonstop until 3 o'clock. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you, I don't care who you voted for, and I don't care which one ended up in office. Neither one of those individuals can save your soul. Amen. That's the reality. And here's what we, we hold on to as if, as if everything that God has in store centers on America. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't. Everything that God has in store centers on God, God being God. Listen, the world doesn't need our opinions. The world doesn't need our politics. The world needs our Jesus. They need, the world needs to hear that Jesus is the only Savior of sinners in the world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through 
The second angel then comes proclaiming, secondly, the futility of false religion. So look at verse 8 of chapter 14. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So a second angel now comes announcing in advance the fall of Babylon. We're going to read about that in chapter 17 and 18. But in Revelation, Babylon represents the system religiously, politically, and economically that stands in opposition to God. It is the Antichrist um, system. It is his way. But here's what we know about Babylon. Just follow with me here. Babylon was founded by Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10. So any nation founded by a guy named Nimrod, you know it's not going to end well. So it's destined for destruction. It was the site of the first organized system of idolatrous and false worship in Genesis 11. The Tower of Babel was the most pronounced expression of rebellion against God. So even before Babylon appears in Revelation, God wants us to know that it is treacherous, it is adulterous, and it's gone. It is going to fall. So certain is its demise that we read twice, Fallen, fallen. And here's what I want you to understand. You might be saying, what does that have to do with religion? As we read here, as we saw last week, Satan has no problem with religion at all. In fact, when the false prophet comes, he's going to come under a religious guise. The false prophet is going to come offering the world religion. But here's what I want you to understand, or even write it down. It's possible to have tons of religion and yet not have one ounce of salvation. Let me say it again. It's possible to have tons and tons of religion and yet not have one ounce of salvation. Religion, brothers and sisters, cannot save us. Only Jesus can do that. And then the third angel comes proclaiming the reality of eternal separation. Look at chapter 14, verses 9 through 11. It says, And another angel, a third, followed, saying, with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. So this third angel now comes and proclaims a message of eternal judgment or eternal separation or what we would say a message of hell for those who are married to this world. And the point of what we just read is very clear. To those who drink the passion and the sweetness of sin in this world and cannot get enough of it, all the while rejecting Jesus will one day have to drink of another cup will have to drink the full wrath of God and will have to endure that wrath forever. Brothers and sisters, don't buy into the idea that your actions today don't have consequences tomorrow. And don't buy into the idea of what you do with Jesus today won't matter forever. For it absolutely does. And in verses 10 through 11 here provides us with the most terrifying picture of hell. A picture of conscious, eternal, everlasting torment. George Whitfield, a great preacher from the centuries ago, used to urge people who heard his message to consider this. He said, consider the torment of burning like a living coal. Not for an instant or a day, but for millions and millions of ages. At the end of which you will realize that you are no closer to the end than when you first begun. And you will never, ever be delivered from that place. 
Let me show you uh, an amazing contrast, and I, I would encourage you to even underline this. For those who do not trust Christ, for those who do not know Christ, look at verse, chapter 14, verse 11, and it says this. Chapter 14, verse 11 makes it very clear. They have no rest day or night. For those who refuse to trust Christ, there is coming a day they will receive no rest Nothing but torment, day and night. But for the child of God, chapter 14, verse 13, it says this, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So for the one who will not trust Christ, there is coming a day where they will receive no rest. But for the child of God, we will rest in Christ forever. I'm not saying we'll rest from work, because if you've been following along with, with Dr. Dave on Wednesday nights, we have work to do, and we're going to see it in a few weeks. We have work to do in heaven, but we rest in Christ forever and ever. May we hear this angelic message even now and respond to it even now. And then third, the third picture is that on the eve of destruction, the harvest of God is approaching. So the harvest of God is Approaching, and now we see a picture of Jesus coming on the clouds. It takes us back to Daniel 7. He's pictured here as judge over heaven and earth. And as he begins his descent upon earth, he is pictured as the Lord of the harvest, the one who will judge mankind truly and fairly. But the contrast we see here from chapter 14, verses 14 through 19, there's a contrast that takes place because, first of all, Christ is going to harvest all saints who trust in him he's going to harvest saints who trust in him meaning look at verse 14 then i looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand and another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And what this means, don't miss this, that Christ will bring all true followers of his to himself. Don't miss this. At the beginning of chapter 7, we are introduced to 144,000 Jews who, um, have, who are sealed in Christ. When we get to chapter 14, guess what? There are still 144,000 meaning Christ has not lost one of his own. Wouldn't it be something if we read in chapter 7, 144,000, and then we get to chapter 14 and we read there's only 100,000. We'd either think, man, who's doing the counting? Or we would think, man, there's a lot of people in trouble. But thankfully, praise God, he is able, Jesus Christ is able to keep his own. He will not lose one. And understand this, although a child of God may not be spared from the enemy, we may not be spared from the wrath of the enemy, but we will be spared from the wrath of God forever. Yet for the person who doesn't know Christ, Christ is going to tread every sinner who turns from him. Christ will tread every sinner. Look at verses 18 and 19. Don't miss this. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. 
So there's not only the reaping of wheat, and in Scripture, wheat means believers. There's also the reaping of grapes, which in Scripture means um, judgment, divine judgment against sin and against sinners. So there is a, a picture here where we need to understand there's a difference between what's coming for the believer and what's coming for the unbeliever. For the unbeliever, the picture is Jesus stomping like the grapes are stomped, and yet there's a symbolic picture and a literal picture. So grapes are thrown into the wine press. That's symbolic. But then when you get to verse 20, it says this, but blood flows out. That's literal. That's literal. That is what is going to come. And the message is clear. Brothers and sisters, one day, every single one of us in this room will stand before God. And either we will stand alone in our sin, having to bear the full consequences of our sin forever, or we will stand accompanied by Jesus, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Either those two options, those are the only two options for every single one of us in this room and in this world, which leads us to the last truth, which is on the, on the eve of destruction, number four, the wrath of God is devastating. The wrath of God is devastating. Now we come to chapter 16. In chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Verse 7, I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So now we see the last of these judgments revealed um, by God, poured out by these seven angels, the wrath of God onto the world. The picture is that the final judgment has come. Nothing can now stop God's judgment. No prayer can stop his judgment. No um, proclaiming the gospel can stop his judgment. The picture is the day of the Lord is now here. There will now be one swift judgment after another swift judgment after another until it is all done. And just follow with me here. The first bowl in chapter 16 verse 2 is poured out and the earth is struck and sores come upon those who worship the beast. The second bowl in chapter 16 verse 3 is poured out which is like the second trumpet. The sea is turned to blood and everything in it dies. The third bowl, chapter 16 verse 4, the springs become blood. And don't miss this, sinners must drink the blood. The fourth bowl in chapter 16 verse 8 is poured out on the sun, and people are scorched by the heat of the sun. The fifth bowl, chapter 16, verse 10, unleashes torment on those who worship the beast as they are plunged into darkness. The sixth bowl, in chapter 16, verse 12, is not a picture of judgment as much as a picture of preparation for judgment. For the satanic trinity will gather an army for the day of battle. Then you have the seventh bowl. Chapter 16, verse 17, the full and final judgment poured out across the earth. And as we said a few weeks ago, each of the seven judgments points to a picture of the end. So the seventh seal is basically saying the end. The seventh trumpet means the very end. And the seventh bowl means that's all, folks. I mean, that is the point. That is the picture. But here's how I want to end. I want to end this morning, again, by taking on this maybe not so lovely and not so encouraging subject of the wrath of God. But I want you to see this. I want you to understand that the wrath of God here will be poured out, first of all, in physical judgment. If you look at verse 1, it says, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And here's what we sometimes miss. 
Judgment isn't just coming upon sinners. Judgment is also coming upon the earth. I don't know if you know this, but sin also affected the earth that God created. Every time you, you walk outside with gloves on and you start pulling weeds, guess why you're doing that? Because of sin. Because of sin. The reason we have to pull weeds, the reason we have to do all those things is because sin entered the world. And one day judgment is coming even upon the earth, but then also judgment is going to be poured out not just in physical judgment, but in personal judgments. Poured out against those people who defamed the glory of God, those people who rejected the Son of God. And don't miss this. The judgments that are coming upon unbelievers are vengeful. Look at verse 6 of chapter 16. Don't miss what is said. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. It's vengeful, meaning there is coming a day where God will look on unbelievers and God will say, you get what you deserve. You get what you deserve. Yet, think about this, even in the midst of all these things being poured out upon the earth, it's unfruitful. And what I mean by that is this, it doesn't produce repentance it doesn't bring any of these sinners to christ even knowing that these plagues are coming from god even knowing that these plagues are because of their sin mankind still blasphemes and curses and refuses to repent if you don't believe me follow with me look at the end of verse 9 in the end of verse 9 it says this they did not repent and give him glory look at the end of verse 11 they did not repent of their deeds Look at the end of verse 21. They cursed God for the plague. Over and over again, they blame God, not their own sin, for what has come upon them. And let me just say this. Not only do sinners do that, there's a lot of people in this room that do that. Meaning, we do our own thing, we live our own way, and then we wonder why God allows bad things to happen. Or sometimes, and I say this a lot, sometimes we use this thing, well, everything happens for a reason. 99.9% of the time, the reason is we're sinful, we make terrible decisions, and those, those consequences come because of our terrible decisions. And then when they come, we go, well, God, how could you ever allow these things to happen? And sometimes God is going, like, have you watched your life at all? Have you ever scrolled through your Facebook? Do you understand who you are? I mean, the picture is we are so quick to try to blame God for the things that we do. Yet this is a terrible consequence of unbelief, of refusing God's grace, is that gradually you lose the capacity to repent. And the point becomes clear, and don't miss this point. If the grace of God will not win you, nothing else will. If the grace of God will not win you, then even punishment, even wrath won't do it. This is a sad display of the depravity of man, which leads us to this. The wrath of God will be poured out in perfect justice. Meaning oftentimes people ask questions like this. Is that really fair, God? Is that really fair? God, how is that fair for this to happen? And I can promise you this, on that day, there will not be one person that will say, God, how is that fair? Because they will know without a doubt that God is fair to the very end. In fact, the, the question that Abraham asked, and kind of a declaration question in, in Genesis 18, will not the judge of the earth do what is right? And the answer all the way through the book of Genesis, all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament is, yes, our God will always do what is right. 
on that day it will be absolutely clear that God is just, that God is fair. But let me just say this. Isn't there within all of us a desire for justice to be done? Don't we all want justice? I mean, we all do. Every single one of us. Let somebody do something bad against us, and guess what? We want justice. We all want justice on everybody in this world except for ourselves. Or maybe our family. We, we, we are good at defending that. We, we want everybody to pay the consequences of what they do except for us. When it comes to us, we're like, God, I learned my lesson. I'm good, God. We, we, we don't need to go any further here. I, I've got it. But here's the point. Here's what I want you to see. Because of Jesus Christ, because of what he has done for us, we don't have to get justice from God. Because of Jesus, we don't have to get justice from him. For one day, God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus so that it would never have to touch us. Let me put it this way. There is... There was coming a day in our lives, I pray that our, maybe it's already happened or maybe it's happening right now, where our eyes are open to the fact that we are sinners. We cannot save ourselves. And we are deserving of the wrath of God. And we look up and we see it. We see God's wrath approaching us and we know that we deserve it. We deserve it. Yet we also, in our minds, go back to the Garden of Gethsemane and we hear Jesus pray. And Jesus is saying, oh God, if if there's any way possible for this cup to be removed from me, make it so, but may your will be done. Your will be done. And it was God's will that Jesus went to the cross, died for our sins, and on the cross, Jesus drank that cup. And in that cup was the wrath of God. Do for all of us. And Jesus turned the cup upside down after drinking it. Not one drop poured out because it was all absorbed into himself. And Jesus said, it is finished. So when we are sitting here and we see the wrath of God coming upon us because we are deserving of it, yet when we look to Christ and trust what he's done for us and and to us, instead of that wrath coming upon us, that wrath is again absorbed in him. And we are able to freely, truly declare the words of Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want to end today with the words of of Jonathan Edwards. He was the great American pastor of the 18th and 19th century. And he said this, Natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They have deserved the fiery pit and already sentenced to it. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash around them. The use of this awful subject may be for awakening unconverted persons. This is that you have heard is the case of every one of you that are out of Christ. That lake of burning burning brimstone is extended abroad under you, and you have nothing to stand upon, nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but air. O sinner. And then he says this. Consider the danger you're in. Let me just say this. If you are in this room today. If you're listening online. And you do not know Jesus. I pray that this moment be a moment. That you consider the danger that you are in. Apart from Christ. And this would be the moment. That you would cry out. And call upon the name of the Lord. And be saved. 
Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And that will, this will never be your reality. Your reality will not be eternal unrest, but your reality will be eternal rest in him. For the child of God today, I pray that we would understand our need for purity in this world and our need to lean upon the power of Christ working in us and through us, but that we would also understand that there are people in our families, there are those in our neighborhoods, there are those in our community, there are those in this world who do not know the Jesus that we are here celebrating. And we owe it to them. We owe the gospel to them. We owe the message of Jesus to them. And I pray that we would get it to them before it's too late. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand, and we're going to end this time by saying whatever it is that God is telling you, you, you know, I, I don't, but, but you do, that you would be obedient to him in this moment, this holy, holy moment. So let's pray as the musicians come forward. Father, we just enter in this time, this, this holy moment by which we have heard your word, by which, Holy Spirit, we believe you have done your work. And Lord, maybe, Lord, there are those here today who don't know you, Oh, God, we pray. I pray, Father, that any in this room or any listening, God, who don't know you would understand maybe now for the first time the danger they're in. The danger they're in of living and dying apart from you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, work in their hearts and minds. Open their, their ears, open their eyes, open their hearts to you. That they, in this moment, would call out to Jesus to be their Savior and Lord. They would surrender their life to Him. Submit to His Lordship. For brothers and sisters all across this room, God, none of us, none of us are without effect when it comes to the world that we live in. We have all been affected by the immorality of this world. And there are things that we've just gotten used to that we've just gotten accustomed to. And we pray, God, that in this moment you would show us afresh and anew. As those 144,000, they followed you, and because they followed you, Jesus, they were pure. Lord, help us to follow you into purity and help us, Lord, to follow you through the power that you give to us. And help us to proclaim the message of salvation in the midst of this lost and dying world. Finish this time. In Jesus' name.